in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. It's the show where we watch movies and talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today are two good friends, two good co-hosts. That's right, it's a dealer's choice episode, and it is my selection, yours truly. Ladies first, how about you greet our audience, Lizzie Hayes. Hey there, I am so excited to be with two out of four of our hosts, talk about some movies, and let's get into it. It's all hosts tonight, rounding out the round table. Tonight is Chad Robinson. Good evening. I have not been in this particular configuration, so I'm excited for how this is going to go. I've never is this, been. In- is this the first time? It's yes. just been the three of I us. Oh, so, yeah. It is wild, untold pleasures for our listeners to get three <laughs> of your hosts ready to take on a movie tonight. That sounds uh, like we're doing a Hellraiser movie. <laughs> untold pleasures. <laughs> 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 we'll open we, the box. Yeah, yeah. We are not doing a Hellraiser movie tonight. We are not doing a horror movie tonight. We'll get to the movie in a moment. But first, well, I started the show with just a little walk-in impression. Chad, do you have a favorite Christopher Walken quote? So this is going to sound kind of lame, but you have to see the movie Seven Psychopaths at the mm-hmm. very end. Guy with a gun comes out and he says, put up your hands. And the way Christopher Walken just goes, no, (laughs) it's so funny. And the guy immediately has the correct reaction. He's like, what? 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 Yeah. (laughs) I said, no. And then why not? I don't want to. I don't want to. (laughs) It's Uh, just fantastic. (laughs) That made our top 10 list for best of 2012. Some of our lists. That was on Uh, my list. Yeah, and it was on my list too. But what about you, Lizzie? You got a favorite walk-in quote? Yes, kind of in the same vein as Chad. I mean, every to me, like whenever you think of Christopher Walken, you know, you think of like his Saturday Night Live skit that still is viral now. But for me, the very first thing that I ever saw Christopher Walken in, Dustin, I've actually spoken to you about this before. My very first date was in the eighth grade to see Sleepy Hollow in theaters. <laughs> yeah. And I will just never forget the sound anyway. I'm going to back away from my microphone so it's not jarring, but it was like a ha, like kind of sound that you would make as the horseman before in like all the beginning parts before he was obviously decapitated to continue the rest of the movie. I don't know necessarily why that sound got to me, but it did stuck with me for a really long time. And uh, I just, I don't know, he just, he got in there and I've loved him ever since. Uh, wonderful, because there's so many <laughs> quotes out there that I, I, I think I've said it before, too. We got to cover Sleepy Hollow someday. We have to. I'm down. Yes. <laughs> ah! <laughs> his sharpened teeth. Yes, I, I, yes. yes. And he filed his mm-hmm. teeth. Yes, so creepy. Yeah, I remember that. For me, Lizzie, you brought up that a lot of people got their introduction to Christopher Walken through his many times hosting Saturday Night Live. And the same for me. 
we had several DVDs of all types of, uh, you pick them up for $3 at McKay's books or, at, you know, the, the used bookstore or the, the DVD shop, like we're getting rid of all this stuff. And we had a bunch of best of SNLs. One of them had a Christopher Walken sketch with him and Seth Meyers. And this is Seth Meyers is playing the host of a prank TV show. And the prank TV show is all lighthearted, very much like punked, uh, but, you know, kind of silly stuff. And Christopher Walken shows up and his style of pranks are extremely violent. And they show the hidden camera footage and he kills someone with a tire iron before like laughing about it. Um, and so the, the line from him is uh, that the host of the show gets freaked out. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Is this like a prank on me? What, like what's going on? You, you hurt someone. And Christopher Walken looks at him coldly. You're sounding like a real stiffly stiffison. I hate stiffly stiffisons. I want to prank them for hours in my basement. Like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that, that was my, uh, you, when you get to see someone with his uh, gravitas really lean into something a little silly, that will always be in my mind. Chad, what's the last movie you saw? Well, we've covered 1931's Dracula on the podcast, so I watched the follow-up. It's called Mark of the Vampire from 1935, same director. I like this one so much better. It is a very different movie. It's got a fun kind of a twist, almost a parody to it, to the 1931 version. So mm. I, I really appreciated it. I, I'm afraid of the spoilers here, but is Dracula in it? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And my next question is, do they give Dracula something to do? Yes, they do. Well, then my number one criticism of 1931's Dracula has been handled. Lizzie, what's the last movie you saw? So we, my husband and I recently did a double feature just at home. And we started with Nefarious, which was, I think that came out in theaters in April. And we watched that. And afterwards, I felt like I needed a palate cleanser. So <laughs> we watched Holes. From, it's a Disney Channel movie. <laughs> yeah. the book. And I, when I tell you, I don't know if you guys saw that movie. There's a little musical number where they have all the different kids singing afterwards. And there's this one little boy who does this like very Johnny Cash, like you've got to go dig those holes. And I was singing that for days. I mean, it's just a really stuck in my head. But that movie, people like it's a good movie. Go check out Holes. It's a family fun and little adventure. I had to read that in school. Did you guys have to read that? Yes. I did not. We have not done retro movie sing-along, have we? No. <laughs> no. We need to do that little bouncing ball across that's the lyrics right. on the yeah. screen. Yeah, that's what we need. <laughs> Once we get video up, <laughs> that's the first oh, yeah. part of our business. We'll need to do retro movie sing-along to Requiem for a Dream. Uh, well, the last Ooh. movie I saw <laughs> was John Wick 4. It was finally time to now, see that. That was a long it. movie. Dustin, that was it no. was, and I'll say it. It's too long. <laughs> <laughs> Three and a half hours flew it, by. No, they didn't. They drug. Unfortunately, I, I I will say I was a fan of the series, and I'm a Keanu fan as well. But I think we've reached our limit. Uh, but I, I might say that the whole idea, this romanticizing of criminal organizations and the seedy underworld of gang life across countries, with all of this stuff. 
Uh, it might have its basis in some of these older movies about you know, crime families or just about uh, people in charge and how that world works. And that really ties into tonight's dealer's choice, my dealer's choice. Chad, what are we covering tonight? We are doing 1990s King of New York. King of New York, starring Christopher Walken, Larry Fishburne, David Caruso, Victor Argo, and Wesley Snipes. Budget of $5 million, it made half of that. Uh, so not a big hit at the box office. Placed 142, uh, just ahead of Impulse and just behind After Dark, my sweet. Two movies I have never heard of. Number one movie that year was Home Alone. We all like Home Alone. Everyone loved Home Alone, the number one movie that year. Uh, check out Retro Movie Roundtable episode number 14 to cover our takes on Home Alone. IMDb rating 6.9. Rotten Tomatoes, we've got middling scores here, 70% from the critics, 77% from the audience. Well, I thought it was an interesting watch. This was something that not a lot of people had heard of. I don't think this is one of those like required watchings or one of those movies that comes across most people's uh, dashboard. So Lizzie, had you seen this movie before? No, I was one of the people that had never heard of it before either. I... Really, really wanted to watch this with Aaron, but it just didn't pan out that way. So I ended up watching it by myself. I really had no idea what to expect. I've been in this huge habit where I just press play and I don't watch the trailer or anything. Nice. And smart. Yeah. So I, uh, I have to say, I didn't hate it. I didn't absolutely love it. I don't think it's going to – to me, this – I understand why it didn't sweep award season and I understand why yeah, this sure, yeah. isn't a part of everyone's repertoire. But for what it is, it it's fun. It's entertaining. And yeah, interesting the way that you put that. For what it is, which is something that has its own very particular genre or even subgenre. Uh, Chad, what about you? Have you seen it before? No, I had not, despite all the notorious B.I.G. references to this movie. But uh, yeah, this this was a new one to me. I I feel like I've seen a decent amount of Christopher Walken's work, but when you listed it, it's like, all right, let's go. Well, I'll say that this one was recommended to me by my dad. That's right, uh, my loving father who introduced me to way too many movies way too early. <laughs> I think he had overheard us laughing at one of these Christopher Walken SNL best ofs. And he said, if you want to see a walk-in performance, you, he went to the store and he, he brought me this DVD, King of New York. Uh, then again, I didn't know what to expect because I didn't know his range. At that point, uh, I was just kind of dealing with this is kind of this older, uh, he's got this aura about him. He's got a twinkle in his eye. Uh, this is something that uh, he, he, he really sparked a lot of joy, we'll say, like when you see him in things. And so to... Uh, to, to see a character portrayal and to see something that is very particular, a character that he had control over, creative control over how Frank White in this movie is portrayed. I thought this was something that I could not wait to revisit now that we are covering it on the show. This is from 1990. So I wanted to bring up, and I'll ask you, Lizzie, how do you think this movie holds up? Oh, man, that's a loaded question. <laughs> it's it's kind of tough. Uh, I think it's really hard. I think if they were to make a King of New York movie today, I mean, there's a lot of elements of it that I would say, unfortunately, 
probably do hold up. You know, there's that scene where Christopher Walken, it's towards the end of the movie, and it's almost where he kind of unveils his kind of reason for doing things, his his yes. motive, if you It's will. hard to talk about this without, before, but like before we start talking about the, the plot yes. summary. Yes, yes, absolutely. And without spoiling anything, he just, you know, he kind of unravels why he does what he does. And essentially is like, you know, these people had it coming. They're not the kind of people that I want to do business with. And when you think about what kind of people that those, 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 those crime people bosses were, in all honesty, unfortunately, those are problems that you still see a lot today. So in that aspect it definitely holds up i i think when you talk about the aspect of police and their relationship with a lot of these kingpins that i i don't know that much about if i'm being totally honest yeah but i think that in terms of the issues that the police have with the public i mean unfortunately that's still very much an issue as well so i i think that there's some reasons possibly why it doesn't hold up but in terms of the actual bones of the issues of the movie i think unfortunately a lot of this stuff is still happening uh, what an answer is that like unfortunately this is still an issue yeah yeah it, <laughs> yes. and and i i definitely see what you're getting at what about you chad same question there are definitely some slurs that you don't say in movies anymore that come up here. Yes. The treatment of women is less than stellar. Totally. Most, most of them barely have names and even less clothing. And mm-hmm. and there's typically not a good reason for it. Like sometimes there's good reasons. I'm a horror fan. Uh, sometimes, the, <laughs> sometimes the reasons are a little flimsy. But hold you know, on, yeah, the horror reasons are extremely flimsy. If you catch my drift, but <laughs> but, yes, but yes, it's because you're such a horror fan. It depends. I mean, Friday the Thirteenth is a huge offender for that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, some of the some of how the gangs act as well is very early nineties. It it really felt to me like watching a Will Smith performance. Like they were imitating yeah. how Will Smith would act in Fresh Prince of Bel Air, even though that was probably even though it was after. And then also, yeah. like you have to think that like Fresh Prince is like is like the Miller Light of like what yes. <laughs> is like like the the toned down, watered down version of gangster or right. thug. He doesn't touch this at all, uh, and that's 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 interesting. You you could almost look at it because. There was a very particular time that uh, these styles, these manners of speaking, I think you could almost call this period in a way, uh, in, in, in which case it gets kind of a, a pass from holding up. I would say that there's, I would agree with you all that there's, there's a couple things that stylistically you're like, oh, that is so, so dated. But it's also comforting to see stuff that is dated like that. The same way, I mean, imagine what the Fresh Prince is wearing, you know, that green and yellow striped t-shirt and like a bright colored hat. It's silly. Like you wouldn't do that. Things change so quickly as far as uh, styles go. But I, I will say th- with the uh, with the, the choice of clothing and the choice of music used in this, it does kind of fit this very particular zeitgeist of this time. And I'm glad that it does. Uh, it, you know, there are certain movies where the criminals are so smooth that they're wearing slick suits and a slick suit just kind of, you know, exists throughout uh, the generations of movie making. But in this, you've got some really wild uh, choices. And uh, we'll talk about after we come back from our little advertisement break, Chad is going to give a plot summary 
for King of New York, and then we're going to dive into this movie. If you haven't seen it from 1990, whether you're a walk-in comedy fan or you want to dip into the kind of dramatic flair that walk-in can provide, watch this movie, come back, and listen to us. See you on the other side. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we are back. If you haven't seen a 1990s King of New York then it's time for you to pop that DVD in, pop that VHS tape in, whatever it is, watch that movie because Dad is going to tell you what happens in this movie. Take it away. Frank White is a drug lord recently released from prison. He moves in on rival gangs, eliminating them one by one unless they cooperate with him. The NYPD's narcotics squad is hot on his heels, but they lack evidence to bring him down. After arresting some of Frank's henchmen and seeing them walk free, the NYPD squad take justice into their own hands and raid a nightclub where White is partying and kill many of his men. Frank retaliates and begins taking down the cops, even at a funeral. Lieutenant Bishop finally tracks Frank down and a confrontation ensues on the subway where Bishop is mortally wounded, as is Frank. Frank makes it to a cab where he's surrounded by the police and slowly fades away in the back of the car. You know, what a concise and to-the-point plot summary here. And there's a lot that happens in this movie. There's also there's also a lot of stuff that just kind of we take our time with the development of our scenes with New York as to what's going on. I think we have two minutes of what it looks like inside Sing Sing prison, and there's not a single thing about prison culture in here at all, aside for a couple of jokes. So the movie's to the point. Our man, Frank White wants to run New York City in more ways than one. Um, Our music is brash. Uh, The type of people that we're dealing with are plain to see. Uh, The style is dark and ominously lit. Uh, Aside from the best man speech uh, at the police wedding at that bar, you know, the way that it's always portrayed, police only hang out in one bar that they are regulars in, and that's where they had their little reception. There's no comedy outside of, of, of that little space. If someone were to bring up gritty crime dramas, and we've covered a couple on this show, Lizzie, how would this movie fit into the conversation? I think this definitely follows the formula of all of your typical gritty crime, crime dramas and the fact that you've got your kingpin and it's, you know, just basically an adult version of King on the Hill, if you will, you know, just trying to push everybody down until he gets up. Probably my favorite of all of these movies as amongst many others are probably the, de- the departed. The departed. <laughs> I just think that is like the juggernaut of all juggernauts. And I think what the departed has really that this movie is lacking is you really just hit the nail on the head is there's not a lot of heart. I think you catch moments every now and again where you realize maybe really, really deep down inside there's some kind of moral compass. Mm -hmm. 
and and frank, but it's just you don't see it enough that if any other character or excuse me, any other actor was playing Frank, he would be totally unlikable. The only reason why he is likable is because he's being played by Christopher Walken. I think that's his only saving grace. So I think they really probably should have added a little bit more sugar into the recipe. And I think Mm. possibly that would have really given you something that people wanted to hold on to. They tried and it just went nowhere. They kept going back to this hospital and he briefly mentions, hey, this will help keep the neighborhood nice-ish. But I wanted more. I wanted a reason. Did you have a niece, nephew or something that went through this hospital or did your wife who was dying of a terminal disease receive good care there? Something. That plot point, it just felt like a hanging thread of, oh, I need $16 million. (laughs) I'm going to go sell barrels full of Coke to get this. I'm like, all right, we've got Breaking Bad. I'm, I'm in for this. We will do Breaking Bad now with Christopher Walken. And nope, that's not at all how this went. Well, and that's where you, another way to look at it is a Breaking Bad can exist because of this idea. This idea existed before, but I, I tend to agree. What Lizzie, you said there's like little heart here. Frank White seems particularly uncaring or unfazed by certain things. He gets revenge, but it doesn't seem passionate. I can't even think of, for all of the bodies in this movie, and we'll get to the violence a little later. For all the bodies in this movie, I don't really think I even see, especially Frank, but not many people at all, even bat an eye at their fallen uh, gang members, their their fallen uh, criminal buddies. The most that we get out of that is uh, with Caruso and Snipes, mm-hmm. with, with with our police. They they have uh, a, a connection that they're, they're that that is shown on screen. But yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. Is that there's this movie. And I was actually waiting to say something like this till later, but I'll say it now. If someone were to say, like, I like dark, gritty crime dramas, you might say, no, you don't. You like, <laughs> you like it kind of dark. This movie's dark and only dark and not in the most artistic way. It's just almost unfeeling at times. Yes. Now, we covered True Romance, which is another walk-in piece. Uh, you get a great, great walk-in monologue and absolutely none of it can I say on a podcast, a family-friendly podcast. But it it is dark. It is hard to watch. But it's put together a little better. And especially with Patricia Arquette, you're really behind this character that's very flawed. He even says it himself. I mean, we're not speculating here that Frank has no remorse. He says it very early on in the movie. (laughs) He's like, yeah, I mean, maybe it's all those years in prison, but I just, I have no remorse. It's sad. It's a terrible thing. Yeah. It's a a terrible thing. Yeah. It's just like, okay. (laughs) And I, I, I agree with the hospital piece, but then what really took me away from that and it turned back into a, a business deal for me was the fact that he actually had his drug deal. He was trying to negotiate right in, <laughs> next to a in child's the- bed. And I was like, wait, yeah. is this now? Because at first I was thinking that the hospital was really there as you know, truly an act of kindness. And then I went later to question of maybe this is the, if we're going to use the Breaking Bad 
metaphor. Maybe this is his car wash. If you've, you know, if you know, you know, if you've seen that show. And then, um, but then he does that deal and he does it right in front of the child. I'm like, is this your weird way of protecting yourself? Because you think that there's no way that violence could go down in the middle of this hospital. Like what I'm trying to figure out what your motive is for bringing in so much potential chaos into this hospital. Like what do you, do you actually care about it or is it just your kind of your beard, so to speak? (laughs) (laughs) This hospital's a beard. Wow. A teddy bear. So it's okay. That's right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Now that's, that makes me, I want to rewind a little bit because I'm trying to think about how you mentioned a, a small moral compass. Is there really a little Jiminy Cricket conscience inside of Frank White? And oh. I want to believe, yes, he, his gang, and I'm, I'm going to get into some what I believe to be sort of the racial politics of New York, not just of the time, but it's also seen in other famous crime movies like, you know, The Godfather, where you have certain families. I don't even really remember much about the names of the families group. I mean, there's like Amada, there's Artie Clay. Typically, these are completely made up of certain types of groups. I believe you have some triads in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got like, all right, this is the the Chinese group. This is the Italian group. I think you've got either a Dominican group or a Puerto Rican group. It may have been a third Latin American country. Right, you've got these Colombian, groups. right? Okay, and you, then you've got a Colombian group. And so like- that is something that we we kind of see, and and it's very popular in this genre. And one of the things that's almost always present, and maybe Abel Ferreira was saying this, or was assuming you knew this potentially, which would be a mistake, is that none of these crime groups give any credit to the black man. Is that the the black groups are seen as the street peddlers? They're not bosses. Uh, now, in movies, we have seen that change way over time, and some incredible uh, black-led, black crime family dramas, whether that's TV or whether that's movie, have come to light. But for the longest time, that wasn't the thing, is that in the hierarchy of criminal overlords, it was always other types of families that could run it, and the... Uh, anybody that was that was black was just seen as sort of small time or like meant to work for someone else. You know, two hundred years past, you know, our, our country's history of slavery in that sense. So that is something where I believe Frank White, and we see this within fifteen minutes. He gets out of prison. He rejoins with Jimmy Jump, with Larry Fishburne, and all of his friends and they are all black and you're thinking is this something interesting about frank white's character that his gang his organization run out of the plaza hotel is one that is uh in partnership with or at least attempting to rise up the community of like the we'll call it just the inner city i know that sounds like a cop-out but uh, like the community of the people that work for him uh this is a place where they're from and so he, would you say with everything that I just said there, that because his amount of like muscle, the people that work for him and with him are black, that he cares a lot about this black borough? I, I think it's, I, I think possibly, I, I think for him, he 
probably has a lot of respect for the people that are willing to put in the work. Not necessarily anything to do with their particular race. It's just the people that are willing to go that extra mile are the types of people that he really wants to live to lift up and put in a position of power. The reason why I would agree with that is, you know, there's that scene on the subway where he is He's with his attorney. Lover. Yeah, he's with his attorney. They're kind of like fooling around, and uh, all of a sudden, this uh, these three gentlemen walk in, and they're getting ready to mug him. And I honestly, that scene, like, I had no idea where this was going to go. I had assumed that that was going to be a situation where he was going. If I'm being totally honest, I thought he was going to give him his watch, give him his wallet, and then right when those guys saw that they had gotten their way with it, he was going to pull out his gun and show sure. him what's up. Like that's yeah. really what that's I thought. That's a was reasonable happen. assumption. Yeah, yeah to be like I'm you're going to regret this. I'm going to make you think you got away with it and then you really didn't. And that is what I thought would happen. But instead he just willingly gives it to him and then throws his wad of cash that way. And he's like, come by the Plaza Hotel. I've got a job for you. So I think I, I think definitely you're on to something. I can't necessarily speak to all of kind of the racial undertones when it comes to crime dramas because I'm crime is not particularly my favorite movie genre. But I got I got to say uh, kudos to to Lizzie here for not being the very common millennial woman who loves true crime. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> right. Although she did pick a crime drama for her dealer's choice, Kiss uh-huh. the Girls. I did. I did. I like a I like um 90s crime drama for sure, but I like it more where it's like an the Ashley Judd vein where it's not necessarily like crime family. It's just more like something crazy happens to a woman and then she has to rise above and fight back and that's Isn't kind of Ashley Judd my... from Kentucky? Yes. yes. Uh, she is. We're yeah, seeing a little bit of that bias coming out here, aren't we? I know. Probably. Chad, you had bit. something to say, didn't you? Uh, dangerous territory. Uh, sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, it, yeah that's fun. a good yeah, it's a good thing to like to preface it with like, hey, dangerous here. Yeah, it's always fun uh, discussing 90s racial tens- tensions on a movie podcast. But yeah, I I don't buy that Frank really was trying to elevate anyone from his community. Uh, one of his lady bodyguards or whatever was mm-hmm. a, a black woman. But the first opportunity that he comes under threat, what does he do? He pulls a George Costanza and puts her in front of him and lets her just absorb all the bullets. Hold on. I watched that scene twice. It seemed like she jumped in front of him as no. protection, like a bodyguard. Oh, he did not. He, uh, he shoves her into the path of the bullets. So yeah, I, I actually watched that. I think I, I actually think I agree with Justin on this one. I, I think I she jumped think in like a lookout. Yeah, I think <laughs> she tried to protect him. I, hold on, but we'll have to pop. We will have to come back and confirm that. Yeah. I mean, we've got uh, there was someone from the Chinese mafia. His name was Larry. That was with them as well. And I think it speaks more to Lizzie's point of he values loyalty. I don't think mm-hmm. he cares what walk of life you are from. Just within this little mafia families, there are cliques. They're like you said, the Italians, the Colombians, they're they're largely sticking to their own racial groups. Mm-hmm. He he is the exception here, but he's using Larry and Larry is not getting paid 
appropriately, you've got to pay for loyalty. And somebody offers Larry more money than he's seen, and Larry flips on him. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? He is definitely equal opportunity here. Uh, he walks into the Italian back room. Yeah. Which, by the way, um, I don't know what those rooms really look like, but if I had to guess, this seems right to me. The idea of this sort of decrepit storefront, all the tables with white linens have the chairs on top, and it's when you get back into like where there should be a kitchen where there's a gambling game going on. Like that seemed, it seemed accurate's not the right word, but it seemed like real to an audience of people that aren't informed of what that's really like. But mm-hmm. yeah, he said, if any of you are tired, of being oppressed by guys like this, you're welcome to come join me at the Plaza Hotel. And so, yeah, you had that fresh-faced young Italian dude. It's like, uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> coming right with you. Follows him right, right. out the door. What juxtaposition, too, because you have, you know, like you said, like that back dirty room that's just kind of decrepit and covered in graffiti, and that's one. And then you have the Plaza Hotel. <laughs> it's just well, right. a total juxtaposition of the uh-huh. two. Yeah, and then I think you've got the the triad gang where their hideout is a rundown movie theater where they're watching Nosferatu. Yes, uh, right. yes. Yeah, so like that's it, it's it's something where building up his community or like this borough, he also says something to the politician, or he, he says something in a conversation when they're around that world, which is privileged boroughs aren't the only ones that are allowed to have hospitals. Mm-hmm. And and I, I thought to myself, well, that's that's kind of interesting. He he brought up toward the end, Lizzie. You know, I know you were trying your hard to restrict yourself before the plot summary, but he, when he's mentioning about like, I don't want to do business with these kinds of people who put teenagers on the street to hook and who uh, do other kinds of atrocities. Hey, man, this industry is a what did he say? One hundred billion dollar industry. And for the three years I was in jail, the problem only got worse just a businessman here. I thought that was like really telling that like, I understand you copper. I understand detective. Your job is to try to stop people like me, but I'm not the problem. People are going to find ways to get high. And if I'm going to make a lot of money off of drugs, what's your problem with me putting it back into the community? Cause you keep killing percentages of the community. That's the problem. He said I don't kill anybody that doesn't deserve it. And he kills the other crime bosses doing things that he tries to frame as worse. Does that make like sense? Are, can you though. can you buy into Frank White's thinking here? Or are you just saying like, nah, because he's a killer, he's got to be stopped? Because that's, yeah. that's Roy's mentality. And that's uh, Caruso and Snipes' mentality too. Is it like, no matter what comes of this, his fame, his wealth, because he's involved in crime, like, hey, we just got to stop him. Yeah, he shows up at the cop's funeral and just offs Gilly, who's sitting in the car with with a shotgun, point blank. At that Ball point, dropped. quite a shock. Yeah, um, I did not point, see that coming. The department is handicapped. Like, there, there is no chance that they're going back after him. Gilly's probably lost his job because he leads an illegal raid and gets a whole bunch of his cop friends killed. So, yeah, I, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't a, you deserve it. It was a, you ticked me off, and I'm going to show you guys who runs this town t- kind of thing. Yeah. I like the plot that 
you just revealed, Dustin, you know, this idea of this kingpin with a heart of gold that just understands that not quite twenty four carat, but it's there's yeah. there's like a little gold in there. I, the well, I think, turns your finger green. It's I think a little if green they had gold. Played into that a little bit more and turned the volume up and had them them really focus on that rather than you know it's almost sometimes you have these action movies where you you know you're jumping out of a plane and and you're doing all these crazy stunts and getting from A to B doesn't always make sense but it almost seems like the writers don't necessarily care because they just want to show the big stunts. Yeah. Oh, we've it's got two minutes almost, till a big explosion. We, we can, we're fine. We don't have to yes, watch this yes, out anymore. Like the audience isn't going to care because we're giving them lots of, you know, all the things that they want. And I kind of think that this is kind of where this movie fell flat because I think if you really were to, if the movie plot was to really zone in on a crime boss that actually did care about cleaning up the streets and making it a little bit more kosher, then I think that actually would have been interesting. And if he really did have this kind of moral code of I'm only going to come after and kill people that deserve it, I think that that actually would be a movie that I could really get behind. It's almost like a crime boss meets Dexter kind it's of the Punisher. situation. Yes, exactly. Like I right. think... That would have been so interesting. And I think Christopher Walken could have absolutely done that. But I think in this case, I think perhaps that's where they wanted to go. It just didn't land that way because I think they focused way too much on getting all the violence and kind of all those big scenes that all of the little pieces that are required to sew all of those patches together just didn't really come into play, into focus. I would actually agree with you here that they there wasn't enough god when you said like turn the volume up like it made sense like if we just had a little more of that does frank white portrayed by this charismatic dynamo walk-in does he become someone that is easier to root for because he's i don't think he's easy to root for um but (laughs) but it's it's something can't can that be something where he's a danny ocean well, no, he's never going to be Danny Ocean, but could that have been adjusted slightly? I think so. Um, and I think there's something interesting here. And sorry, audience, that we I did not intend for this to become as political as it did. But I think there's something interesting about the crime bosses as businessman model is someone who has given up on morality in total and has given up on the idea that we can stop people from getting high. And I think Roy, our detective here, Roy Bishop and his guys, uh, I think it's when uh, Dennis, when, when officer Gilly Caruso's character says something like, I thought we were the good guys, right? We're getting what? 36, five a year. What happened to law that, that you have this mindset of the only way to be good is to be universally good across the board, which means that whether you hold a gun to my grandma or whether you, you buy a nickel bag in Central Park, that you are on the exact same side of wrong and bad. And that's why we can't accept a Robin Hood. Now, he's not a Robin Hood, but that's why we can't accept the person who's mostly bad and a little good. And so I would agree. They don't do enough there with this character. Yeah, if we had seen – if we had – different scenes where he is hunting down 
other crime families that are invading his territory. And we see these uh, young adolescent hookers and he's like, we don't make money that way. And he puts people down and he sends, sends the young girls home. Okay. Then we've got a little bit of humanity to latch on to. Yeah. I really feel like they tried to anchor us with this hospital, but it just, there was nothing else behind it. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. And then I didn't even think about what Lizzie said about like, what if the hospital is just a place to launder money? Right. Uh, I don't want to think about the reality of that in today's world. The, uh, that teddy bear was full of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. Yeah, that was a, <laughs> that's, yeah, the re- reality, getting a little too close to the, the true life fears of 2023. Well, and I think that he, be, because we weren't shown that enough, we don't really know how deep his goodness goes, but he does care about loyalty so much so that his, his two bodyguards, his two attorneys, the older gentleman and the young woman, his sort of partner. Uh, and, and then, um, mistress. Yeah. Mistress is a great word. Uh, th- th- like her. And then you've got Jimmy jump. And, uh, I don't know the names of many of the other ones aside from test tube, Steve Buscemi's, uh, quick cup of coffee on screen. Uh, you've okay. got Giancarlo Esposito uh, in in there with the gang. I think those guys are, we can say, as entertaining as they are to see on screen, they're just there to hurt people. Mm-hmm. So okay. this idea of this criminal enterprise as being the only one that, like, even if the leader has some type of reformed heart of gold, uh, that's not true of everyone else, and they are just going to kill. Uh, which leads to something that uh, that Lizzie brought up just a moment ago, which was, we don't have to try so hard with the, the plot patching here if we have the violent scenes and the exciting scenes. So with, with, with criminal organizations or with uh, crime movies, when it comes to jockeying for power, Lizzie, are you more interested in like subtle pressure and handshake deals and behind-the-back roguelike stabbings things that are like, oh, I'm going to beat you in the boardroom? Or does this movie sort of brash, in-your-face, gangland style of violence scratch a particular itch, or do you have a preference here? For me, it would definitely be the former. I think that it kind of goes back to, you know, when you're an adult, you kind of realize like the sticks and stones thing is, you know, it's not true. (laughs) And you realize like that... Um, that actually words can be far more hurtful than a violent moment. And I think that that's very true kind of when talking about the form of violence in these in these crime movies. You know, I really think that the direct in-your-face violence, I understand why it's there. And I'm certainly entertained by it. And if it's if it's done in, in a way that I think really serves the plot. But what I think is far more interesting is when you look at the – the character development and the relationships that these people form with each other and not just specifically in this movie, but in any, in any crime movie. Yes. And, and really prestige TV has helped with that a lot. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Where, you know, you have these huge arcs that you care so deeply about. And I think there's, I think the idea of why people do what they do and the psychology behind it. I mean, those are, those are, are going to be the plot points that really stay with you so much longer than just, you know, for lack of a better term, watching someone get shot. And I just, I think 
to me, that is those are the kind of movies that I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to. And Aaron Aaron has a song. I wish that I knew what it was. I can't remember who sings it, but anybody listens to hip hop will relate. But Morgan Freeman in the start of it goes and says like goes on this diatribe about the difference between a rat and a snitch. He talks about the difference between a rat and a snitch. And he's like, a snitch is somebody that gets themselves into a pickle and like they just have no other option and they just have to tell on you. But a rat is somebody that's plotted behind your back to for your ruin. And you know, he says some expletives that I can't say, but it's really, <laughs> really funny. And I think that is is honestly what makes these movies so interesting is kind of watching who's gonna break and who's not. Lizzie, I see exactly what you're saying with the with the preference towards the heavy political pressure that stuff can be so intriguing. Gosh, we didn't even get many conversations between Frank and any of the other crime bosses. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we don't know exactly why they failed to come to an agreement. Uh, it was either too rushed, they developed no time for it, or it's just sort of like, uh, well, that's that wasn't too important to Abel Ferreira, you know, that... that to see, hey, could we create some type of alliance? I want to get cut in on it. I believe uh, he he has just the one interaction with the Italian boss uh, and immediately kills him. And then he's got like the other one. He sends his guy, Joey Delizio, uh, yeah. to, to go and make these meetings for him. So we don't get any of that, like our ego versus our other ego. We don't get that. Um, and so I, I think that this movie could have really benefited from that, too. I feel like Artie Clay was meant to be the stand-in, so you didn't keep doing this. Because we get the Colombian boss in the beginning, too, that gets the briefcase full of tampons and then immediately gets lit up because he did not get the pop for uh, uh, Jimmy Jump. You got to get that that man his pop. He loves his root beer, yeah. He likes it cold. Yeah. But I feel like Artie Clay, who can urinate on command, I mean, that is that is a skill. I I admired that, but it got him shot a lot. Like, he, Frank is emptying the magazine on him. That that was a fun scene where he's just like, you know what? Two more. You know what? Two more. Yeah. But I, I did feel like he was our stand-in for all the that other crime bosses. Of, We're going to give you this one. And he's just meant to be belligerent and arrogant and just wrapped up in his own operations. And he's going to stand up to Frank. Here's what happens. And you don't need to see this happen three, four more times. Yeah. Even though it could have been interesting seeing how the triad reacts to him versus you know, a group of uh, Chinese mafia is going to react very different, differently than a group of Italian mafia. Yeah. And, you know, I guess going back into like whatever gangland lore I have, well, triads in New York, they're not on the West Coast. They would be much stronger and scarier on the West Coast compared to New York. But there's there's a lot that had to be done in terms of like the combat, we'll say, between the gang people and the police people that I guess they maybe just didn't have time for it. This movie's only right around like an hour 35. So like it, it wasn't. I feel as if the, there was stuff sort of left either on the edit, editing room floor or just like, nah, there wasn't any consideration put there. But Chad, you mentioned that like, hey, seeing him kind of go back to shoot him a couple more times, uh, we get to see Christopher Walken wield a submachine gun with one hand in a very particular flare. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see 
uh, I think the the name is Ray. That's uh, played by Teresa Randall. That's uh, his one of his bodyguards. Pop out of the moonroof of a limousine to to pull out her gat and start shooting people down. Yeah. Um, th- there's there's some the action here, and and then we even get a I'm not going to call it spectacular, but we get a lengthy car chase scene. Uh, as far as action goes, were you expecting it to be quite to that level? I. I really didn't know what to expect when I started this movie, but I I feel like the action I felt super satisfied with. I didn't feel like they I think the only reason why perhaps it you could argue that it was too much is just because it lacked in other areas. But mm-hmm. had those other areas really came out strong, I think I would have been totally satisfied with the level of violence. To me, the car chase was by far the hardest thing to watch because you know the car chase itself is fine, but then now they're on foot in this abandoned like train area and just watching the the two police together where he's like, "Come on, come on, breathe, breathe, breathe," and Jimmy Jump is just like hysterically laughing. laughing. Yeah. He's almost manic because mm-hmm. you know he knows he's gone. Like his goose is cooked. Like he's been shot. He can't really move. He has nothing to be able to fight with. So he knows that whenever uh, these two cops are done, you know that he's Damascus is just going to get up and just completely annihilate him. So he knows. So he's just being completely manic in the process. And that was hard to watch. I'm not going to lie. That was a really, really rough scene. And then it cutting like directly to his kids afterwards was just like a gut punch. Yeah. The action for me did surprise me. I didn't expect a fire hydrant death and we we get the immediate, uh, nobody rides for free and I can't (laughs) finish Jimmy's favorite epitaph. Mm -hmm. So I, it's a cool I believe scene. that guy who got hit with the fire hydrant uh, is uh, he was the new the newlywed groom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. They they couldn't resist going even darker there. But mm-hmm. the car chase scene in the on the bridge in the pouring rain, all oh, that was pretty cool. And then to Lizzie's point, we we get off foot, uh, we go on foot, and some of it wasn't even resolved. Like, Okay, Frank White has a gun to a woman's head trying to get Bishop to not shoot him. And he shoots Bishop, and Bishop fires three rounds back, and we don't see that the woman got away. Like, this is stuff that I just want to point out to the director of, hey man, if you're going to put this lady in an important scene, make sure there's a resolution. Did Bishop, (laughs) while he's falling, firing haphazardly, hit this woman and we know he hit Frank white at least once. Where did the other two go? And there are other times for the funeral. They, their getaway car is a limo at a cop funeral (laughs) where there's sure to be motorcycles and the cops look out. They chase on foot briefly and then essentially go, well, he made it a hundred yards. He's gone. (laughs) And I'm, I'm just thinking this thing is not an escape vehicle. Go after him. I need some kind of resolution here. Well, especially considering traffic is what right. is what gets Frank White in the right. end. <laughs> yes, New York traffic. It'll get you one way or another. That's right. I was absolutely convinced he was gonna because I, you know, I was very confident that that was Frank in the limo. But again, I had something totally different planned in my mind because you know the limo pulling up and 
So you have about 15 seconds to kind of emotionally prepare for whatever you're about to watch. And during that time, I thought to myself, this is definitely Frank and he's going to taunt him. He's going Mm -hmm. to say something to him of, you know, I bet that, you know, that really sucks, like some kind of really insensitive remark, but then probably mark his territory and saying, you know, you came after my guys, you, you know, he killed a Jimmy and a good number of his men. And so it's just this idea of like, after this big fight, let me, uh, peacock a little bit around you. That way you can kind of know what's up. And instead it was, Hey, you, and just right. <laughs> blew, blew his head off. And I just Blam-o. like was totally, my jaw was on the floor, like literally mouth agape. Like I could not believe that that had just happened. I, this whole time up until that moment had convinced myself that he was going to be the hero of the movie, that at some point he just had some miraculous moment where he you know, was two or three steps ahead of Frank and Frank got his and just it did not work out that way. It was like Game of Thrones almost. Like nobody <laughs> was safe. Like I, the moment that you thought somebody like, okay, this is going to be the person that takes him out. It was like, no, they just he's gone. This was more like Game of Thrones season eight. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it was just really rushed. George R.R. Martin was no longer writing our script. Uh huh. Yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh. Uh, I don't even get us started on that. (laughs) uh, I got to say, like, the the shock of that moment alone is like something, whoa, kind of couldn't believe it. But also, I was a little confused as to why he ran to the car in the first place. I don't remember the movie giving me a reason for the urgency for him to run away from the funeral. Um, I thought that was maybe an opportunity to develop his character a little more Mm -hmm. to see if, if he does become, if Dennis becomes someone that we can root for because, and the, and the reason I I wanted to say something is because I don't get a lot with Roy Bishop here. Chad, how, how do you feel about our leader of the police? I mean, he's there to oppose the young guns and their vigilante justice. He's just, he's the top brass or not even top brass here, but he's, he's in charge of them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, his entire point is, or his character arc is no, 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 don't do that. Oh, now you're all dead. Guess I've got to be the one to finish your work. And so we're all supposed to appreciate that, that he's, He's realized that he was wrong. What? And I don't even know that he was wrong, but yeah. Uh, most of the characters, I thought it was a complete waste of Wesley Snipes. Like, yeah. Tommy, and Tommy it did make me think, been. like, what else, what else would, would, do we know him in yet? Because uh, he is such a uh, powerful stage presence, but he's just kind of second banana here. Yeah, not even that. I mean, he he has no personality in any of his lines. They're just they're cookie cutter, straightforward lines, and we we see him in things like White Men Can't Jump. But yeah, like I was just kind of kind of thinking to myself that like, what, was it a real underuse, or did we just think of him as having way more like presence at that time? But yeah, I, I think the only thing that really stood out to me was um, about about Snipes is. The very well known and, and speaking of the hip hop of this time with the Schoolie D and the KRS One, that like the black police officer, the black cop, is really seen as this kind of that. Now they didn't put any weight on it 
or sorry, they didn't put too much weight on it in this movie, but it's very, it's a very weighty subject. Right. The idea of, mm-hmm. uh, Hey, we, we know who you guys are targeting and I can't believe that you're wearing that uniform kind of mentality. Yeah. There were so many interesting things. I did look it up. It was 92. So he gets this chance oh, yeah. to shine. But New Jack city was one year later. But you're, you're right. There's so many other interesting topics and they, they largely had to cut this movie. It was going to be rated X. So oh, wow. it it was almost two hours long and it was rated X. And I don't think they were going to put the nuance that we're begging here of, hey, expand on some of the racial reasons, expand on the hospital. Tell us uh, why Tommy is a detective. Was he from this neighborhood? Does he know these people? Or is there a sense of betrayal there? I don't think any of that was there. Oh, I imagine Chad, since, how nice would that have been if, he, it, if they grew up together somehow? Yeah. yeah. Jimmy oh. Jump and Tommy knowing each other. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy like, Jump and Tommy Thump. It's a better movie, but granted it was rated X before. And it's, that just tells me they spent more time in the cat house. There was more of the, they keep calling her councilwoman. Her name's Jennifer. She doesn't even get a last name. There was probably oh, yeah. more of her chest in this movie or her yeah. backside. Uh, there was probably just more of that. We probably got 15 to 20 minutes more of uh, gratuitous nudity. Right, right. Yeah. Gr- yeah, gratuitous just kind of for the sake of it. And and I feel like that's that's kind of what we get. We, we had a direction. We had some stuff like within frame. And it almost makes you wonder, uh, like, if Walken was the right choice for Frank White. I guess, Lizzie, you're, you're a Christopher Walken fan. Uh, how did you feel about his like portrayal we do get some of the like soft shoe from him and his smile very particular things about christopher walken but you know we've talked about sort of the rest of the themes of the movie or the 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 things that kind of string the plot along but but tell me a little bit about how you saw this christopher walken portrayal honestly there's nobody else that could have done it in the sense that christopher walken has this Centric personality to him, and he's just he's so quirky and silly. You know, in, in the beginning of the movie, when you know after they Jimmy and and his guys take out the the Colombian kingpin, you know, with all the tamp all the tampons, and uh, mm-hmm. he gets his root beer, and they're back now at the Plaza Hotel. You actually don't know what's going to happen. You have no idea what his relationship is with Christopher Walken at this point, and they're kind of having this tough standoff and then all of a sudden Christopher Walken, which I have to imagine it was somewhat improvised because I know he loves to dance. He does like that boom. (laughs) Yeah. And and then, you know, Jimmy, keep wanting to say Lawrence Fishburne, but uh, Jimmy is, you know, the glitter boy. He's looking to get sprayed and slayed and says all these other things. He's like, (laughs) I heard that. I heard that. And like, he just, he does add his own flair to it. And I think to me, it feels fairly obvious, at least in my own imagination of how I envision Christopher Walken. I feel like in those moments, that feels authentically him, you know, like what he is able to bring to the character. And I wish that they would have allowed more of that to shine through because that's kind of what I wanted to see a little bit more of. You know, he also works on the other side in the sense that he's a very scary man at the same time. You know, he can be very intimidating and be very tough and he's very believable. You know, when he's talking to 
and he's in that back room and he's like, you know, if there's a nickel bag that's sold in the park, like I want to be in. He's very, very believable in those roles. So he has that duality to him. I just wish they would have shown a little bit more of the former so that we could get to know him and understand why he's so motivated to do some of the things that feel kinder. I wonder if there's a word like that encapsulates being charming and menacing at the same time, because he can really, like I mentioned that twinkle in his eye, he can almost Mm -hmm. shut it off. And that is when like, uh uh-oh, like, you know, you think about how happy your grandfather is to see you, like when you visit him at his place when you're a little kid, but then like, uh uh-oh, you, uh, you, you dropped your plate in the pool and now he's upset. Like the difference (laughs) of like, oh no, oh no. That's, and, and you get that from him. I think in that sort of posturing moment between Jimmy and Frank early in the movie, when he kind of looks back to him after he does the little dance stuff. uh, And he even like kind of explains like, ow, he's very, Uh very fun. It's what we know of him. And it makes you think this movie is going to go in a different direction that really leans into that. It does not. But um, he, he turns to him and says, why did you never visit me? Or how come you never visit me? Right. And, and I, I, on my second watch through, I said, boy, uh, Jimmy Jump does not apologize. And he just says, who wants to see you in a cage? And that's enough of like, okay, our little standoff is finished to go off and do whatever. And it was like, huh, this is, this is, uh, it's no sign of weakness. It's like, uh, uh, yeah, hey, we are, we're all still tough guys here, right? We can do our little dance and hold up the Colombian drug lord's glove and sniff it and give a weird little smile. But yeah, yeah then we're going to get back to sort of the darkness. Were there any other performances aside from Walkins, Chad, that you were like, overwhelmingly, we've talked about some of the things we're, we're lacking and we weren't given too many. But aside from Walkin, what, what else about our, our actors here? I think the one that we are supposed to anchor ourselves to is David Caruso. I think he did a great job. He he may come up at least some of his scenes in our superlatives. He's the one that is having this frustration. In modern times, we have our Daredevil movies, our our series. We have The Punisher. Mm -hmm. He's going through that arc of what the system's broken. What are right. we doing? And he points out his paltry salary, 35000 What am I doing this for? Yeah. And he's seen his his buddies. Uh, we, we see this to some extent in modern times. We've seen police forces protest certain laws, and they're refusing to make arrests because they're seeing some of these criminals go right back out onto the street. So police officers are saying, we're not going to do our jobs when the DA – is also not doing their job. Now you can debate which one of those or both. I don't. I don't really care. That's not what I'm trying to wade into. But we see this continue out into modern times. So he is. He for me was the anchor point. Like, of course, I want more Steve Buscemi. I see him. I got excited. It's like great. Steve Buscemi's in this. Christopher Walken. I'm in for a good time. Steve Buscemi is out within he's five gone, minutes. Man. He's really, gone, man. He's gone. Unfortunately, quick. we yeah. don't know if he's dead. We he just never appears again. Wasn't he in the car? Like when they lifted up the the trunk? When Caruso, was that him? Was that I thought that was him when he oh. lifts up? I don't know. I just recognized the glasses, so I didn't know one hundred percent. But I know that. When they're trying to find a reason to arrest him, 
Caruso uh, lifts up his trunk and Walken is like, I had, I had nothing to do with that. I had nothing to do with him. And it, it looked like him, but I didn't know for sure. I just had assumed that that was Steve Buscemi by the glasses. Yeah, we got a little dirty cop action kind of early, which is like, yeah. hey, we're going to take you in um, and we're going to take you down like, down by the docks or underneath this bridge and we're going to leave you here. Like, <laughs> that's – I think – we 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 didn't swing hard enough that direction, or at least we made it to where there was uh, infighting within the police cell. But uh, yeah, I think Caruso. W- what do we know him from? Right, CSI Miami, and so he gets yes. this. He get the, our our TV cop procedurals always take kind the sunglasses of, off, make the pun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like it's hard in a movie like this to be team NYPD. Mm-hmm. I think you walk into any movie that features this kind of, uh, not genre is what I'm looking for, but this kind of uh, story material. And you're just like, are they going to give us a cop that's cool? Sometimes they do. And he was our best shot. Um, but yeah, I think he uh, his portrayal of that kind of character was, was something that kind of lit up the screen when he was on. Uh, speaking of characters in New York City, uh, as our character did this feel like a new york movie to you chad i mean yeah donald trump rented out the plaza hotel for a picture with christopher walken he yep. his wife at the time uh, ivanka was a huge christopher walken fan and so that was his deal you can use my building i'm sure he also put in the deal make sure you say plaza hotel as many times <laughs> as humanly possible because it it was used a lot but take a picture with my wife and you can have it. So yeah, I, to me, it felt very, very New York centric. I'm sure. Hey, if we the got, art of the deal. Yeah. Uh, if we had Russell on, he could be pointing out all these streets and landmarks and things like that. I'm terrible at this. You could have said it in Toronto and called it New York. And I would have been like, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. I, besides the, Plaza Hotel and and I there's I've only been to New York a very short a small amount of times so there's just nothing to me that stood out as New York other than the Plaza Hotel but it does have that fast paced energy and I think they they did a great job yeah I feel as if there's a little bit of crampedness uh, th- this isn't West Side Story New York you know this is this is different. And uh, I, I felt that would have been if, great, though, if they had started snapping fingers. Right. <laughs> I would have loved seeing Christopher Walken just. He could have done it for sure. Mambo, have you guys <laughs> seen the Fat Boy Slim video weapon? Yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> yes. It almost makes me think we should have watched that for this one. That should have been my dealer's choice. Let's just watch that music video. <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess the only thing I really wanted to cover last was just the 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 hip hop. Uh, I think the music in this movie is jarring. Mm-hmm. As in, it it kind of is grating to your ears, and I try to appreciate this stuff. And even still, it kind of it's. I, th- I think one of you mentioned the word chaos. Like it just kind of seems as if, uh, like the dancing is frenetic. Uh, see, that's the thing is at this time nobody is sitting there uh, like playing around on their phones. Like having fun means that you're dancing or you're doing drugs or whatever it is that they're doing. And uh, so, like, the music is really frenetic. I just wonder, do you have any appreciation for that time, Lizzie, or was it more of a, 
man, this is really like, it's part of the shock of the movie. I think it's a part of the shock of the movie, but I do also still appreciate it because, you know, you were mentioning earlier that this movie really has, this kind of oozes as a period piece. And, you know, it's kind of crazy that now the, it, we're talking the, the about early 90s, 90s period. Now it's, that feels like a period piece, makes me right. feel old. But I do agree that the 90s had just like the 80s and 70s and all the decade, big decades before, there's just this really tangible sense of style, really tangible sense of of music and just a vibe. And I think that the music was really no different. I think that it really yielded itself to to just creating that period piece so that when you watch this movie, you turn it on, you are truly transported back to the 90s. It is one of the, around the height of MTV. So yeah, we're incorporating that a lot. But Dustin, you you nailed it. It is jarring. It's weird. We have dance party cuts. We have another cut, which is screams MTV to me of they're, they're playing Am I Black Enough for You, which is a very interesting song that's Billy Paul's to play when we have Frank White, who even in his name has white. But that's the song that's playing. And there's just a, a lot of women with exposed breasts in the background. And that's what we're doing. And it just this is the 90s. This is what we're doing. There's kind of an exploitative part of it. But even the the lounge singing and we get the musical cut, I don't I don't know what our director was going for. There's a lot of things. It seems like somebody told him in film school, focus on an object. It doesn't matter what. So we're going to focus on like a teacup or a suit and then just slowly put and across the meaningless things on a table, and that will be our shot. <laughs> and I'm not one that notices these things a whole lot, but I noticed them here. Of why are you doing these lingering shots? Why are you doing these tracking shots for something that these weren't checkoff guns? None of this was relevant at all. Right, and you know, Hey, a little crooning from Freddie Jackson, the Freddie Jackson, right. Freddie Jackson. Sure. <laughs> right. Sure. Hey, I'm never going to say no to that. But there's a difference when David Lynch focuses on like a musical piece and a difference when Abel Ferrara does. Uh, and I just thought that was it was something where I was I'm always excited to let the music fill my enjoyment meter. But I think yes. what it did more here was it filled my angst meter or it filled my. Uh, just sort of the immersion was there, but it also like, I don't know if I was ever really comfortable watching this movie. It was just sort of like a, okay, well, uh, yeah, that's, there's, uh, there's more dead people. And uh, even the relaxing part is tense. And so like, there's, there's things where uh, maybe that's, uh, that's art, right? Is that you're supposed to feel and, and we did. But hey, give us a little more Steve Buscemi. Give us something. I don't know. But it was just something that I, I wanted to see how the the music affected y'all. Is there anything else about the atmosphere of this movie before we hit our superlatives? I think I'll ask this question, and it may make it kind of heavy. But Dustin, we we did Crank together, and it feels like this movie is trying to go more towards the Crank style. It's going towards like male power fantasy. There's violence. There's guns. There's beautiful women. There's there's a lot of nudity for the sake of just having that on screen. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is going to sound insane, but I don't think it worked as well as Crank. 
<laughs> I think Crank uh, knows. I think Crank wasn't trying to be anything other than that, though. I think that's the real difference. Is like there, Crank is a movie that understands what it's trying to do, and honestly, I think leans in and has fun with it. Like there's an element with all of those Jason Statham movies where I don't think he really takes himself very seriously. Obviously, on the surface, he does, but I think he knows that this isn't going to win any Oscars and he's just trying to have fun and give you a good show. Whereas I think this movie, I I think was trying to air more on like what Dustin was saying, more on that artsier side. And I think that this movie didn't really have a very rooted identity. It felt like it was trying really hard to be a lot of different things. And ultimately when you do that, when you just can't find an authentic anchor, you just kind of end up feeling all over the place. I think that's kind of what happened in this movie. I, I see what you're saying, Chad, with the idea of like, d- could it have leaned that direction or which direction did it lead? And I think what it was is there was a box with a hole or a dot in the middle. And that dot in that box was like, no winners. Nobody wins in this life. I know. Mm-hmm. Is that our artistic message? No winners here because nothing turns out better for anyone. And that isn't, when you go into a movie, you may think, I say that all the time, who are we rooting for here? And right. I think even just in our discussion, we're like, I don't know, the the jerk cop? <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, no, that's a great question. Yeah, Lizzie kind of hit on it because we've had these conversations during the Bond movies and you're like, okay, I've seen this. Maybe I, I'm clearly not the demographic. Did you wind up getting that feeling for this movie of, Okay, they're going in a dir- direction where they're they're just saying we're not really interested in my demographic. Hundred percent, yes. Yeah. I mean, I I paused it at one point when I was I had to watch this movie in like different chunks where I could like really find the pockets of time where I could sit and pay attention to it. And one time, Aaron was working. I was watching and I paused and was like, man, I like I wish we could have watched this movie together because I feel like this movie you would probably really enjoy. I'm sure for all the reasons that we've talked about of the holes that are missing, I think he would have felt those too. But he's an action guy, so he would have really appreciated it. I like these movies, but what fills my cup is character development. So I, for that reason, like I don't watch Crank because I rec- I and I can appreciate I can I appreciate Crank smart. and like Aaron loves anything with Jason Statham he's gonna watch like I appreciate those movies and I totally respect why people like them it's they're just not for me I don't want to watch action for the sake of it just like we don't want to watch you know we don't understand lots of uh, yeah. nudity for the sake of it with horror movies so I feel like it's just it's not for me if you're gonna give me some action give me some intrigue yes. Right. Yes. And if you're not going to give me some intrigue, then are we just supposed to revel in this darkness, this bleakness, uh, betrayal? Or is that what we're supposed to feel? Because I get that, but maybe that's where I think that 77% rating from the audience, those are people that went in saying, I know, like, I know exactly what I'm supposed to get from this movie. Mm-hmm. I think if you were to give that to general audiences, that percentage would be quite a bit lower. Uh, But let's talk more about this movie in our superlatives. You ready, guys? Ready. All right, Lizzie, can you give me your MVP for King of New York? Yes. My MVP was Christopher Walken. I think he makes this movie watchable, and he really is 
to me, the guiding light of this movie because when he does have those moments where I'm going to keep to my argument that they're really Christopher Walken, maybe he's – I even go as far to say that he's improvising. Those were (laughs) the little twinkle moments that really made it fun for me to watch. Yeah, good call. Chad, who's your MVP? Same here. Uh, He's menacing, he's unhinged, and he's also quirky and fun. And I genuinely think now he would be the only reason someone would visit this movie if they hadn't heard of it. They would say, oh, Christopher Walken's in it. I'm going to go watch this. That's an interesting take. And that is the only reason that this was introduced to me. Uh, My MVP here is Abel Ferrara, our director. Not because he did an incredible job, but because he made a choice and stuck with it. He did not branch this movie out to be more appealing to a more general audience. He stuck with his choice. And that is something that I'll always give credit to the directors for. There are other stylistic things about this movie that regardless of its total score that I thought it stuck in like mostly, uh, it's hard to say that a movie devoid of humor is better because it's devoid of humor. But I'm all I'm doing here is I'm trying to give him respect for the guts it took to stay in that box. Uh, even though I agree with y'all two that hey, walk-in is kind of the thing that is best about that movie. Hey, so, you got the richest man in Italy to fully finance this movie. Hey, talk about art of the deal. There you go. Right. Lizzie, who is your best supporting actor? I went with Dave Crusoe for this one. I had imagined that he was going to go down this Harvey Dent path. You know, you are you are either die the hero or you live long enough to become the villain. And in some ways, he that that's exactly what happened to him. But <laughs> <laughs> so he did go down that path. But I just imagined it being slightly different than it ended up picking out. But I I really wanted him to to win after his monologue about just feeling like the system is so broken. It made me feel like he was the only one with any kind of true moral fiber. I didn't agree with the choices that he made, but I think that underneath it all, he really had the best of intentions. And I think he really wanted his city to be clean and and crime-free. And I just, I think David, so I never watched CSI. I actually watched Session 9. That's the only movie I've ever seen with him in. Excellent one. It's like a like a sleeper movie. I, not, not all the people know about it, but my brother made me watch that when I was, I think, thirteen. And oh, I no. <laughs> like when I I had so many nightmares, like so many like crazy haunt my dreams, haunt my life. And I still think about that movie to this day. Like I still really think about that movie and I will never boil water without thinking about that movie. Like it just like there's something <laughs> about that movie that really stuck with me. And Dave Crusoe was brilliant in it. So I just, I have a soft spot for him. Oh, great answer. Chad, what about yours? I'm two for two with Lizzie, save for session nine, but do see that movie because it's, <laughs> it's awesome. But, it will yeah. haunt your dreams. <laughs> yes, it will. Oh, that is three for three. David Caruso gets mine as well. I think this role allowed him to show off a little bit of his chops. Uh, but I will say there was something about your answer, Lizzie, that was like, you know, Roy says to Frank late, uh, who made you judge and jury? And he goes, it's a tough job and somebody's got to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that exact same question was should have been posed to David Caruso's character. I think instead what he says, you're just going to kill everybody you can't arrest. Uh, and like, but that's, that's it. That was just the amount. That's all we, it should have been 
tougher and they should have been at each other's throats. But instead, he was just kind of like, oh, all right, I'm over this stuff anyway. <laughs> um, Don't get me involved. <laughs> yeah. 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 I got to finish my Jameson whiskey here. Uh, so what is your hidden gem, Lizzie? I, for me, it was Giancarlo Esposito. I didn't realize that he was a part of the, you know, the Jimmy Jump crew until after the, the fact. I was crew. looking up the IMDb of everybody and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. He's got we a have lot of FaceTime. Yeah, Poyos Hermanos. Like, he's in this movie. Where is he in this movie? And then I had to go back and look through the pictures. And so, I mean, he got right past me. I didn't even notice him. He looks so young. It is just absolutely wild. Uh, so yeah, he was my hidden gem that I would have never noticed if it not been for IMDb. Uh, multi-tiered hidden gem, hidden gem. I have eaten chicken at a Pollos Hermanos. Stop it. I didn't even and know the place was real. I thought they it, totally it's not. made that it was up. A, it was a pop-up in Austin. <laughs> That's uh, that so they, cool. That they, made, they made an actual restaurant you can that go That is to. super cool. Chad, what's your hidden gem? Steve Buscemi. Test two. Like, please give me more of him. It was just... He, he was a fun character. He's annoyed with Jimmy Jump. I want more of that banter. Like, here, have some cocaine. Settle yourself down. <laughs> yeah, here's how you test it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was good. We, we, we of course, could have used him more. Uh, mine is going to be the in the subway scene when the three muggers come up. That is a young Harold Perrineau uh, who had huge roles in Oz and Lost. I knew him from the Matrix sequels. He plays Pilot, the brother of uh, Tank and Dozer. I don't remember his name in the movies, but uh, he's the uh, the new operator for uh, Neo and his crew. And so just seeing him young was kind of neat um, and menacing. And you realize you look at the dates and you're like, oh, look how young he was. Oh, I remember these movies. And now I'm looking at Wikipedia. He's like 60 years old. Like, oh, no. <laughs> All right. Who would you recast, Lizzie? So my recast was Janet Julian, and I hate the fact that I would run a recast like the only female character like that was a principal in this movie. But I just – and maybe it was just the way that she was written and not so much the actress because Janet Julian herself was was great. But I, I wish that she had a little bit more spunk in spirit to her. You know, there's that flirtation that takes place in the table where she's like, you know, I – I thought you were going to keep out of trouble and and just they have that little moment. And I I think that somebody – I so I chose Michelle Pfeiffer to replace her because yeah. I think that she – even when she's not speaking, she has this presence to her that feels like she can be one of the tough people. Like I can hang. I'm not this delicate little violet flower mm -hmm. and I don't need to be treated like one. And that is very much the presence that she brings. And I think that for this attorney, you really needed that quality, that really tough woman quality that uh, I think Michelle Pfeiffer could have done a great job in. It would also be kind of nice if our women had anything to do. Right. right? I know. I mean, like, uh, I, I think I want to believe that if Michelle Pfeiffer had taken this role, that she would have fought for more of an arc. And because unfortunately, you know, she like does cocaine off that guy's chest and then she's gone and it's just over for her. So I mean, it was more than his chest, which never do that. It numbs things. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, and I just like, there's, all right. Pro tip from place. Chad. Yeah. <laughs> pro tip from Chad. Uh, all right. So what's your recast, Chad? Larry Fishburne. 
I thought he was absolutely awful. And he begged for this part. Like he showed up in Jimmy Jump apparel and didn't have to audition. He was cast as something else. And I know it's an anachronism, but it seemed like he was doing this Will Smith impression. <laughs> Will Smith wasn't big at this time, but it just seemed like that. And I wanted to replace him with Chris Tucker. Like Chris Tucker saying these lines, I believe. I do not believe Larry Fishburne saying these lines. Yeah, that's interesting. My first, like, because he's in the very beginning of the movie. Like, when you hear him, I said, like, out loud, like, oh, no. (laughs) That's the choice because he's had such powerful roles. And that's that's the choice he went. But he probably just wanted to expand and, like, have fun with it. Yeah. And that's that's fine. But it was like, ooh, okay. I guess that's how he's going to be. Um yeah, and, and also credit for I, I had mentioned earlier that it was only Frank that might might have had a tiny conscience, but I really dug that little moment when he gives the coins to little kids. Hey, go play the game. Yeah. Go play yeah. Street Fighter. He's and like, he, make sure it, that these kids get enough to eat and like yeah, gives and, the, I thought that was nice. Yeah, hands are a Benjamin. Like that's that's we don't get enough of that. Lizzie, you were so right. Character development was way down the list of stuff mm-hmm. that mattered here. For me, uh, the guy that ended up kind of betraying, offered 50 grand to let the, the, the cop sting happen, is played by a guy named Paul Calderon, uh, who you may recognize as being the bartender in Pulp Fiction, who says, my name's Paul and this is between y'all. Uh, <laughs> people like him. I don't really like him. I think uh, Terrence Howard, though maybe a bit too young at the time, would have been a character who is more sympathetic to the audience, who doesn't seem as slimy and seems as the exact kind of guy who you, who it might tug at your heartstrings more to see him go through what you see him go through before his ultimate death. So Terrence Howard there instead. What's your best shot, Lizzie? So I usually pick... For me, I find that the first 20 minutes of a movie, if they're pretty powerful, like I, especially if I just press play, I find that I usually find my best shot pretty early on in those cases. And this one was really no different. I've got to say, I really enjoyed the scenes just where they're driving. It's like almost probably in the credit scenes. And there's just this traffic light that keeps shining on Christopher Walken's face. And then all of a sudden it'll go back to dark. And then it'll shine back on his face. And the main reason why is we've kind of touched on it a little earlier is that, you know, at this point, he's not, hasn't even opened his mouth yet. We've no idea who he is, what he wants or any of those things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Christopher Walken has the, the twinkle, as you called it. But he also, just as you said earlier, Dustin, can really become dead behind the eyes. And just seeing him with absolutely zero emotion. And maybe it's the – the headless horseman, (laughs) but just seeing him with that like complete blank expression within that kind of blue light shine in his face, it kind of like it gave me chills. It was pretty creepy. So that, and that really stuck with me until the end of the movie. So that made best shot for me. Yeah. They, they drive by, they drive by the hookers and she says, Hey baby, you want to stop? And he turns over to her and she goes, (laughs) (laughs) no, it would have been good. It would have been good. It would have been a way different movie. Oh, <laughs> all right. What's your best shot, Chad? It's Frank's slow, kind of awkward walk up the subway stairs after his encounter with Bishop. We don't quite know that he's been hit 
but there's something off and they just stick with him as he makes this very slow ascent. Yeah, that's, that, that is good. And I think it took my second watch to like kind of key in on it. Once you knew that he'd been hit, they're like, Oh yeah, they, they did something. He's even ginger as he walks through the turnstile. Right. His, his gate is off. Yes. Yes. My best shot is, uh, it's, from the perspective of the three muggers in the subway train, which is uh, right after the him and his attorney were fooling around, he's got his arm around her, and he looks. He doesn't look physically imposing, but there is this sort of dark aura about like what he's capable of. That uh, particular style of light uh, that kind of takes the color away. Um, it, it was kind of. Um, it was like this dangerous sterility of what he was showing. Um, and you know, his all black was, was kind of cool part of that shot too. But, uh, that was right before, like, you know, he, to get his money clip, he's going to show him his piece. Oh, what do you think of this? I, I thought, I thought that was a, the movie needed a tone setting moment like that. And we hadn't had it yet. So I thought it was a good shot. What's your best overall scene, Lizzie? You know, took the words right out of my mouth. My favorite scene is the train scene. I, It's early on, and so I had really thought this movie was going to go in a completely different tone based on that exact scene. And that scene was so fun for me to watch because, like I had said before, I was really anticipating a completely different outcome. And because he just so willingly gives up his things and sees kind of the potential that these – to him, they're kids, like to them that these kids have. And he tosses his money, just willingly gives it. And he's like, come by the Plaza Hotel. I've got a job for you. And to me, it it just – I had thought that that was going to reveal some kind of humility in him. And obviously, it did not go that route. But I really enjoyed this scene because there was tension and it – you know, it just kind of, it really piqued my curiosity about Frank and his character. And so I agree. That was a really important tone setting scene. Yeah. I'm with you. Chad, what about you? Yeah. It'd be nice if those scenes went anywhere. Oh, no, man. And that's the last we see of any of those guys. I, I like the scene in the tavern with Gilly talking to the other cops and the reality of his world is setting in and depression is setting in that the system is stacked against them. It's, in favor of the rich, it's in favor of the corrupt. And now what do I do? Do I keep getting paid to be ineffective at my job or do I take justice into my own hands? So I, I like seeing that transformation of thought. Yeah. And, uh, emotionally put too. That was a cool scene for me. I think it is at the, the end when Frank is explaining why he does what he does in Roy's apartment. Mm. He's kind of explaining mm. his version of reformation. And even though I, I don't think Roy stood out that much to me, uh, he kind of played a good guy to be talked at. Uh, Roy essentially only speaks in like one liners. And so uh, I, I just thought that that moment of tension, like that's kind of where with a movie like this, you have to pull something that matters about it. It's not the plot. Yeah. It's not the character development. So it's got to be the style or it's got to be at least like a theme. And I think like we kind of get our hints of that in that scene. Uh, and that's 
you know, might sound like I'm being a little too cruel to this movie, but I think you, you have to find something that stands out because there are some things that stand out. Uh, but that's that's mine there. What about a wardrobe or makeup moment? What's best for you, Lizzie? I remember seeing a lot of black leather trench coats and <laughs> I it really stuck out to me. A lot of different people, there were a lot of extras wearing them. You had them within Jimmy Jump's crew. You had all sorts of characters wearing them. And to me, that was a very big statement piece in the 90s. I mean, so much so that that kind of became the outfit of the Matrix, if you will. I mean, I think a little bit later, it was like everybody was wearing a black leather trench coat. And um, I don't know, there's just something about you never see them today. So whenever I see a black leather trench coat, it just feels so 90s to me. So that just it really stood out. To ruin, to ruin everyone's mood, Columbine ruined that. I know, that. I know. They, they banned trench coats in schools and all that. I know. Well, I unfortunately, it you know that became something. I remember when my brother had he wanted to get a black leather trench coat, and he ended up getting one. Um, but my mom fought him so hard on it because he he wanted one for to be like Neo. Right. But I yeah, totally appreciate. But yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that's kind of. Um, the sad association that happens with those as well. Chad, what is your best wardrobe makeup moment? So of the two women that are around Frank most of the time, there's Ray. Uh, she has this really unique black body suit and hat. And it's almost, it's almost like a leotard type thing she's got on. It's just unique. Gave her, it made her stand out a little bit and it may have, given her a little bit more character, even if she jumped in front of the bullets or she was thrown. <laughs> I still argue she was thrown because I think it's emphasizing how awful Frank truly is. But uh, mm-hmm. I will not rewatch it to <laughs> If that movie was remade today, Ray would be played by Janelle Monet, and they yes. would give her a much bigger part and she would rock it. Unfortunately, absolutely that much. Uh, for me, it's uh, one of Jimmy Jump's crew guy, the guy who kind of jumps up. He he only says a couple things, but it's very much the '90s slang. He's the guy who kind of peeks his head out. It's like word, or, <laughs> <laughs> right after Jimmy Jump gets spat on and he wipes it off oh, with his finger. That that's where bad. he's like, "Give me some," and like he just wants a little skin. Like that uh, <laughs> that guy is so funny to me, and he wears the dumbest, like narrowest, thinnest sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, that are so dumb that I love them. So that's my favorite thing about our wardrobe here. L- a lot of cool stuff, but actually, similarly, one note. Um, I guess I also enjoyed Christopher Walken with the no tie look. Uh, change one thing, Lizzie. Only one. Only one thing. Okay. So I didn't like the ending. I think that to me, it and you made a good point earlier that perhaps the reason why nobody wins is to make the point that in this lifestyle, it's just that's how it's always going to end up. But as a viewer, I just – I think that Christopher Walken either needed to get – like walk away and I I had imagined at this point because I – he just always kind of figured out how to get back on top. So I had figured that while the police were searching that he was just going to – be gone and he would have snuck out of the cab. But I think that either the cop avenges all of his partner's deaths or 
Frank gets away. And I- It's got to be something and it's neither. There's got to be something. Like, because to me, it's like, oh my gosh, all these people just died literally for nothing. And it's just, it's wild to me. And um, I just, I think to there's always- that level of satisfaction and payoff you want, even if it's not quite the way that you wanted. I, you know, you either want to win or you lose. Nobody really wants to tie. So I think you, <laughs> you ultimately, I think it just, I think I would have been a little bit more satisfied if there was something a little bit more black and white. I feel you. It's burn after reading. What did we learn today? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hell if I know. Well, I guess we learned not to do it again. Right. Yeah. I was like- <laughs> uh, what is your change one thing, Chad? I'm going back to the hospital. Give it some kind of meaning, even if yeah. it's just a scumbag meaning of, hey, we're going to use this as a front. Give it some. That was a weird plot point to make important in the middle of the movie and then just forget about. Yeah. I think uh, it, it had a job to do and failed. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Uh, mine, I think I've talked about it. Roy Bishop, the, the, the detective lead detective needs to be expanded upon tenfold or just one of them, uh, whether it's Snipes or Caruso, like the, the, he, Roy, the, the, the actor who played, uh, Roy Bishop, uh, whose name is Victor Argo. I don't know him. I, I'm not going to pretend as if this was above par for him or not. But uh, his character just seems defeated the whole movie. And if you're going to do that, give us some redemption or something. And I don't feel like even though he lands the killing blow on Frank White, as you said, Chad, we don't know if he got someone else either. But also, like, we just don't really get anything from him. So uh, I, I would have liked to see that. This is this is coming to you, audience. Dustin wants more cop development. That's what I want here. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's what this movie could have improved from for me. All right. Let's finish it up with best quote. Lizzie. So while Jennifer and Frank are having dinner together, she says to him, I thought people like you didn't believe in the legal process. And Frank responds with, I thought people like me were the legal process. Mm -hmm. And I think if they had expanded on even just that quote and kind of let that be their North Star, I think that they would have found kind of the direction and the voice that they wanted. Because ultimately that was my biggest stick with this movie and gripe with this movie is that I feel like they didn't have the direction that they really needed to take it home. Mm -hmm. What's your best quote, Chad? Where am I chicken at? (laughs) 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 Gilly's taunting him. I got your chicken. And there are a lot of words I'm leaving out. Mm -hmm. And and it was, it was a nice callback. Yeah. Oh yeah. But when they're in the chicken shop, the callback too, like, uh, there's a, there's another cool like quote there. You can almost miss it, which is uh yeah we've got a we got a witness going to talk. I don't leave no witnesses. I don't like, leave no witnesses. Yes, that's pretty tight. <laughs> that um, scene was sad for me in the sense that I was um so I was I was on the treadmill while I was watching like a good portion of this movie, and he takes the food and he's listing off all the things that he's wanting. I'm like, oh, I'm so good, and I'm like, oh my gosh, onion rings, and I was walking, and then when the cops come in, he just throws all the food at that guy. I'm like, no, I know. So that was really fast for all of that food, by the way. Right. Yeah, yeah, he was complaining immediately. It's like, settle down there, Karen. Like, your food will take a minute. Have you ever worked in the food industry? Like, it takes a minute. You want your food to be fresh, right? Yeah. Uh, my best quote. You think ambushing me in some nightclub is going to stop what makes people take drugs. This country yes. spends $100 billion a year on getting high. 
and it's not because of me. All that time I was wasting in jail, it just got worse. I'm not your problem. I'm just a businessman. Now take out your piece, but be careful. The little stinger button at the end of that Mm -hmm. was like, okay, most of this is menacing. And then what I loved about that quote is you get Walken's like little eccentricity at the end of it. Be Mm -hmm. careful. And then as he walks out, he gives him the bang, bang. Um, I just, the, the movie made much more sense for me after that delivery. And if you have to wait for just one line of dialogue to make it make sense, maybe we lost our path a little bit along the way. All right. If it hadn't been clear, this is a movie that we all offered the things it could have done better, the things we were lacking. So Lizzie, out of five star rankings, zero to five point five is the worst. Five is the best. What's your rating for King of New York? I think I'm going to give this movie two stars. And... I'm going to do that because for me, rewatchability plays a huge piece in that for me. And I just don't see myself revisiting this movie. I think perhaps once just so that I can see if Aaron likes it. But I just don't think that it's something that I myself would ever turn on and watch. So that's kind of the first reason. And the second reason is that we've touched on this a little bit. But I think unfortunately this they had so many different plot pieces that they wanted and they just weren't able to marry them all together to make sense. Like they really, really had a lot of stellar ideas. And unfortunately, I think that it was like there's just too many strands and they couldn't just find they couldn't find the right path for themselves and they just tried to put it all in. And unfortunately, I think just when you do that, you have to sacrifice character development and it really showed in this movie for me. And in the time since this movie's release, there have been a lot of other movies that have done – they've either picked up some of those pieces and really fleshed them out and had something great, or they've been able to round out this genre more so than it was at this time. So, yeah, I, I understand. What is your rating, Chad? That's an excellent point because you have to compare this to things like that came later, Training Day, The Departed. Uh, I love you, Dustin, but we've spent an hour and a half saying shoulda, coulda, woulda. Yeah. And I I just couldn't connect with this one. I, I tried. So it's a one and a half star movie for me. Yeah, a fair rating. A fair rating. Um, I am going to – I thought I might be the high man here at 2.5 stars. This movie really, really misses the mark. And what sucks is that we see the mark they're trying to hit yeah. because yep. it's been done so well since then. And so it really left me wanting in the worst way, the way we were saying like only Christopher Walken could do this role. That really kind of puts a damper on it because you you don't even, he doesn't save the movie. <laughs> it's up to him to save it and he doesn't. So uh, while it is a particular performance, it has its own style. It's doing something that was maybe a, a touchstone for not just other movies like this, but also for the hip hop community. Like there's things about this movie that uh, are important, but most movies get zero credit for the historical impact on the rest of movie making culture. This one also receives zero credit. Uh, I think I'm being generous with 2.5. And so that puts us right around the two for our average. Uh, Yeah, I'm glad I could share it with you. And I think now we know that when we're looking at crime dramas or we're looking at this genre, that now we've got uh, a high end of the spectrum and a low end of the spectrum. Sort of we can know what we can look for. Right. But it's time for us to select a movie for next time. Uh, Chad, are you going to help me with that? 
Absolutely. So just like Picasso, we here at the Roundtable are going through a blue period. Next up is a movie with the color blue in the title. So Dustin, three options. Option one, three colors blue from 1993. A woman struggles to find a way to live her life after the death of her husband and child. Option two, blue is the warmest color from 2013. Adele's life is changed when she meets Emma, a young woman with blue hair who will allow her to discover desire and to assert herself as a woman and as an adult. Or option three, Blue Valentine from 2010. The relationship of a contemporary married couple charting their evolution over a span of years by cross-cutting between time periods. I love that you went with uh, just like Picasso. I thought you were going to do a little George Gershwin Rhapsody in Blue. Uh, April sixty-five. <laughs> uh, tell me, what is the rating of option two? Blue is the warmest color. NC seventeen, sir. Well, I guess the retro movie roundtable is going where it has not gone before. Blue is the warmest color for next week. <laughs> you tried with this episode, and it was cut. It was edited down to just an R. So you know what? We are. We are tripling down <laughs> we almost got there thank you chad thank you lizzie thank you uh, yeah you might not be thanking me that hard considering i subjected you to this movie hey you hey. know what this will not be even bottom five of worst movies that we've covered like there there are ones that i am still angry at russell for so <laughs> you know what another blue movie blue velvet maybe that made me question whether i like movies Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, wow. This is by far not even close to the worst movie I've seen. So it, you're you're still in good company. Okay, good. Yeah, my reputation hasn't been hit that hard. No, not at all. And thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's audio only. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thanks for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie? The painting was a gift, Todd, and I'm taking it with me.